pray and, uh, and dig into this. So Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for this morning. And now we pray, Lord, that as we get into your word, that you would speak to us and make, make yourself known to us, Lord, as you do every time we open this book. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I want to I wanna let you in a bit on my thought process for this past week, which is sure to be a very exciting journey. Uh, I, it's a big moment. I mentioned that. It's a really big moment. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's years and years and years of waiting for this, and it's 16 months since we last met together in person. It is since before COVID, since we were gathered together in this way. And so this is, this is a big moment. And I'll be honest, it felt a little bit intimidating. It felt a little bit like I was, uh, I've been sitting on the bench for a year and a half and all of a sudden it's the NBA finals and a, a, an injury thrust me into the starting lineup. Like there are people here now. I'm not just speaking to a camera anymore. So uh, there was a bit of intimidation. Like this has to be the best sermon ever. Uh, which isn't, isn't good pressure to have. And, and the problem was I wasn't clear on what God wanted me to say in the first place. And then I was having these dreams. And I'll tell you about one of the dreams. I was sitting somewhere over there, and I was talking, and it was not going well, which some of you are like, yes, yeah, so far, so good. Uh, and I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, a giant black curtain, someone drew the curtain in front of me so that nobody could see me anymore. Uh, and I'm glad that we didn't install a curtain in the front because some of you might be tempted to aid in fulfilled prophecy. So I'm having these dreams, and then I realized something, that my role today is a little bit like my role at weddings, when I serve as, as the pastor at a wedding. The goal of a pastor at a wedding is just to not get in the way, you know? Like, if the thing you remember most at a wedding is the pastor, it's probably because they did something really awkward or inappropriate. The main event is the couple, the, the vows and the lovey-dovey, mushy look in their face as they stare into each other's eyes and it's, you know, smudging cake on each other's face. All that, that's the main event, right? The couple. And the pastor is just there to kind of facilitate the main event. And, and that's very much my role here today. I am not, definitely not the main event. And, and the worship team isn't the main event. And believe it or not, this building... This beautiful home that God has made possible for us is actually not the main event. The main event, whenever we gather together in the name of Jesus, is the presence and glory of God. And Hello? Okay, okay. Seriously, I just, we, we planned that. Because, you know, it happens so often at CAP that we just kind of felt like we want you to feel comfortable here. We want you not to feel like this is so different. So anyways, here we are. Uh, where was I? That a pastor's job here is, is to facilitate uh, the, the presence and the glory of God, to help you experience that. So once I got that through my thick skull, then God made it clear what I was to, to preach about today and gave me some peace about that. So today we are talking about drenched altars. Uh, this, this summer, we are going to, a lot of our sermons are going to be uh, based on some classic Old Testament stories. If you grew up going to Sunday school, these are the kinds of stories that you, the, the, these were the bread and butter. These were the stories that you heard all the time. And a lot of times us pastors go, well, I don't want to preach on that because everybody knows the story so well. But they do need to be preached on. And I'm excited to get through some of these, to go through some of these stories this, this summer. Uh, now, today's story is probably not like a, 
It's not like a, a, a chart topper. It was probably never like the number one children's Bible story if you grew up in Sunday school. Uh, and if you didn't, then this is all going to be fresh and that's great. This was probably more of a top 40 hit. Never made it, you know, really high, but, but familiar. It's from 1 Kings chapter 18. And so if you have your Bible with you, that's where you're going to want to turn is 1 Kings chapter 18. And just a little bit of context for this story. It happens in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th century BC, so almost 3,000 years ago. And Israel at this time is being ruled by a king named Ahab. And Ahab was a bad, bad dude. And I mean that in the worst way possible. Uh, Ahab was one of the worst kings in Israel's history in terms of unfaithfulness to God. And so God sent word through his prophet Elijah that there was not going to be any rain on the land for a few years. And we here in BC can kind of understand how this would be disastrous, right? The recent dry spell, the recent heat wave we had kind of tells us there can be some pretty disastrous results. But Ahab does not think that it's on him. He thinks that the problem is Elijah. And so he essentially puts a bounty on Elijah's head because for sure this is not his issue, which of course is a mistake that nobody has made in 3,000 years since to shift the blame elsewhere. So that's what, that's what Ahab does. A few years later, God kind of tells Elijah, it's time to come out of hiding. It, it's time to confront Ahab. And so Elijah does, he meets Ahab, uh, tells him to summon together all of Israel, especially the prophets of the two most popular idols at the time, Baal and Asherah, and to bring them all onto Mount Carmel. And here's what happens next, courtesy of my wife and children. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not let fire. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Midday passed, and they continued to frantic, continued 
their frantic prophesying until the time came for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. There's more of that to come, just to give you, give you a glimpse. Nothing like seeing your four-year-old son call on the name of a ninth-century Canaanite idol and see ketchup all over the floor. <laughs> so, um, if, from a human perspective, here's the, here's the showdown, right? So they're on top of Mount Carmel. Here's this contest that Elijah has set up. From a human perspective... All, all of the odds are in the prophets of Baal's, uh, you know, it's, it's in their direction, right? Because, because there's 450 of them, and they are giving it all they've got all, all day, right? Just praying and prophesying and slashing themselves and so on. Like they are giving it everything they've got. They've got the, the backing of the king and queen of Israel. They've got the support of the majority of the populace. And here's the thing. There is, so, so Baal was the, uh, was kind of one of the most popular Canaanite gods in, in that time. And historically, there's evidence that suggests that people believed he was responsible for fire and lightning. So Baal is the god of fire and lightning, and here's the contest is whose god can light the, the altar on fire, you know, from, from, from heaven. So this should be right up Baal's alley. This is a political contest. This, this is a debate set up in the guy's hometown, and he's got every endorsement, and he's like 60 points ahead in the polls. Like it is everything says that this is going to work out for Baal's prophets. But of course, it, it doesn't. All day, they're just, they're, they're going at it. Elijah starts to taunt them and mock them. You know, what's wrong with your God? Is he too busy? The, the English Standard Version even has it. Is he, is he relieving himself? You know, is he taking too long in the bathroom? Little little humor for those of you who are children and immature adults. Um, is, is Baal just too busy to, to deal with you right now? Is that the problem? He, here's the headline for us, though. The headline is that worship of false gods always fails always and, and just quickly an idol is not just a, a stone or a wooden statue that you bow down to an idol is anything that you give your worship your devotion to anything that serves as your ultimate authority and, and it's always a created thing so it can be a person especially a romantic partner who you've just kind of loaded all your expectations in life on. It can be status. It can be money. It can be an addiction. And an addiction is actually a good metaphor here because as any addict will tell you, an addiction forces you to do all kinds of crazy and irrational things like dancing around and slashing yourself with swords and spears all day. And an idol never, ever satisfies it can give you a temporary, fleeting kind of satisfaction. It can, it can kind of be an escape for a period of time, but ultimately it always, always fails. Because created things, and this is, this is something I've, I've got from Tim Keller, an author and, and a pastor, who says that, that idols cannot bear the weight of our worship. Idols as created things cannot bear the weight of our worship. So of course Baal was going to fail at this. Of course it was just going to be silence. Then it was Elijah's turn. Here's, here's what happens next. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trenches. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell to the ground, prostrate, and cried, The Lord! The Lord! He is God! The Lord! He is God! If you're wondering why the shoes, uh, it was a little bit too much to use stuffed animals as sacrificial bulls. That just, that wasn't going to fly. So, uh, so the odds, we said, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're in the prophets of, of Baal's, uh, you know, favor, uh, it, it, what we said before. Here we see how, how Elijah deliberately stacks the odds against himself or against, against the Lord. First of all, he's given the Baal prophet's first choice at the bull, and he's given them the first chance at getting this altar lit. Uh, then here, Elijah douses the, the altar with water. I mean, 12 times. You know how I know that? Because I was the robot this week at camp. For all you kids who are wondering... You know, if you were like, who was the robot? This is the moment where the superhero reveals his secret identity. It was me. And so I know that four jars three times equals 12. So 12 times, which is like the 12 stones that were used to build the altar, which are like the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the people of God. This, this altar kind of represents the people of God who are supposed to be worshiping the Lord. Elijah, uh, he, he fixes it douses it with water, just drenches the thing. So it's just like this altar of incombustible stones and soaked wood and soil, just just drenches the thing. And then Elijah prays, simply steps forward and prays this prayer of faith. Remember the prophets of Baal, they prayed all day and they're just sacrificing their bodies for this, right? Elijah just steps up, prays a few things. It's not like some ritualistic incantation. It's just him speaking to his creator, his Lord, who he is confident is going to come through here. And then the fire falls 
and it absolutely consumes the altar. In case you were wondering, did the fire actually do its job? Verse 38, it fell and it burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. This wasn't a victory by narrow margins, like some 100-meter dash in the Olympics. This was complete and total domination. And final score, Baal zero, the Lord, I don't even know how you give him a number. I mean, this was a contest that Baal was supposed to excel at, and yet God just completely blows Baal out of the water, shows his power when the odds are totally stacked against him. And I feel like this is what God loves to do sometimes, isn't it? That he loves to do the impossible. That he, It's almost like he waits until the last possible moment and then he comes in in a blaze of glory. It's, it's, what, it's what he does here. God consumes drenched altars. And this is where I want to I just take a step away from the story for a second and talk about the connection with our day. Because this, this idea of drenched altars has stuck with me. For a couple of years already, as I've thought about ministry on the North Shore, let's talk about uh, this, this region in general. If you've heard me preach a bunch of times, you maybe have heard me say some of these things, so just bear with me. But we live in probably the most secular area of the Western Hemisphere. Statistically, uh, there are uh, more people in greater Vancouver who claim no religious affiliation than any other major city in North America. There are less people proportionally who go to church in the, in the Pacific Northwest than in any other geographical region of North America. Uh, pour some water on. Drench this altar. It's also an incredibly wealthy place. North Vancouver is the 10th richest community in Canada. West Vancouver, our neighbor, is the absolute richest and when you look at Deep Cove in particular, that comes out. Uh, the, the, medium, the median household income in the 2016 census here in this community was 123,000 compared to 70,000 in BC as a whole. Uh, almost a quarter of residents in this community uh, have a household income of more than $200,000. Almost a third of residents of this community are in the top 10% of uh, income earners in all of BC. This is a very wealthy place, and sociologically, if you have a lot of wealth, you're more likely to think that you really don't need God very much, especially when you live in a place as beautiful as this. I mean, guys, do you see outside? What are you doing in here? You could go, you know, you could go hiking. You could go snowboarding in the winter. You can go paddleboarding. I mean, why spend time inside at our church service when you can spend time outdoors in, in creation? I mean, this is kind of the attitude, right? Pour some water on. Drench the altar. Let's talk about the history of churches in this community. There was a church that once stood on this exact property which saw the work of the Holy Spirit, which saw the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, but that church was effectively booted out, evicted from this place by a dying denomination and replaced with another church that was a lot more socially acceptable, but ended up dying out very quickly. There was a church plant just in the, uh, in the high school, just through those, those trees over there, that once looked to have a lot of promise, faded out and, and died off. 
There have been a few other small churches that have struggled to make a gospel impact. That's our community. Pour some water on. Drench this altar. And then there's the history of of our church and this building project, which I have rehearsed uh, in previous weeks. So just quickly, it was a long uphill battle. Uh, Churches, new church buildings are pretty rare. I think, I think I've heard that this is the first new church building on the North Shore in about 30 years. I don't know for sure if that's true, but, I, but that's what I've heard. It's far more common for old church buildings to be sold and turned into not a church, and there's an example about 100 meters down the road just that way, than for new church buildings to emerge. And we're not some mega church. I mean, look, we're, we're like, we're maybe a few hundred people who call this church their, their home. So a massive undertaking, pour some water on, drench the altar. The odds are stacked against us. But here we are. I mean, here we stand. And is that not in and of itself kind of a sign of God's power at work in our midst? I mean, we've come out of 16 months of not being able to meet together, not being able to do the central thing that we do as a church, 16 months, and you're still here. (laughs) 16 months of relying on technology, which, by the way, God providentially provided for us and provided the, the, the people who had the gifts and the abilities and the knowledge to actually do it. But 16 months later, and we actually saw baptisms, and we saw new people connect with us. 16 months later, we're still standing. Despite the challenges of this property, Here is this building where we can host Sunday morning worship services. Let me tell you, when this building was, or when this property was purchased, nobody thought that was going to be possible. Because of the dynamics of this land, everyone thought, no, we're just going to be able to build like an office space or or a ministry space. Nobody thought that this would happen. And yet here we are. Despite the financial challenges, we secured a mortgage And because we came in under budget, when does that happen to a building project? We came in under budget, and because of donations, we're actually a million dollars under the mortgage that we were already approved for. So here we are. Despite the the, the bureaucracy and and the the amount of red tape, we got our our development permit, we got our building permit, we got our occupancy permit one day before restrictions were lifted and one week before day camp started. And despite despite some very vocal neighbors who have uh, opposed us every step of the way, even more people in our community have said how excited they are to have us here. And I want to be really clear. Nothing that I have said is meant to be self-congratulatory. Nothing of this is supposed to glorify the Bridge Church and certainly not to glorify me. It is all from God. It is all his doing. The the odds make that clear. This is a gift through and through, and an improbable one at that. And let me tell you that I believe that this is just the beginning. I, I believe that we're going to see more. And when we see more, we already know that it's not because of us. It is because of the power of God to consume drenched altars. 
So when we see North Vancouverites who are supposed to be apathetic to the things of Christian faith be baptized in the name of Jesus, we will know that it is because of this power of God. When we see children and teens who have been given every toy and every experience and every opportunity just really want to come to this place to worship God, we will know that it is because of the power of God. When young adults who have been fed a torrent of content meant to lead them away from historic Christian faith nevertheless find truth and beauty in a crucified and resurrected man 2,000 years ago, it will be because of the power of God. When marriages are restored, it will be because of the power of God. When addicts are released, it will be because of the power of God. Not because of our strength or wisdom, but because our God consumes drenched altars. You know, you're not being very Baptist today. You were dancing before, and now you're clapping and shouting. It's very unnerving. (laughs) There's a catch here, though. Because there's actually something that we're supposed to do about this. See, in 1 Kings chapter 18, before the section that my kids so delightfully acted out for us, in verse 21, Elijah asks a question of the people. And it's a question they don't have the answer for. They just stay silent. But here's the question, verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. You've got, you've got a choice here. You can't sit on the fence. This is what was happening with Israel. They were trying to put their eggs in both baskets. They didn't want to commit the problem is that when you don't commit, when you, try to, when you try to ride the fence, you actually are making a choice, making a commitment. The people of Israel had effectively chosen Baal. Even verse 30 shows that, that Elijah had to repair the altar that was devoted to the Lord. It had been neglected. This is, by the way, you know, so Elijah prepares it just in order for it to be destroyed. This is how Carolyn and I feel every time we clean the house. It's just repairing something just for the inevitable ensuing destruction. But in any case, the thing is you can't really do the God thing halfway. It just doesn't work. Because if God can consume drenched altars, then where are you going to find any comparable power in the world? It's not, you're, you're not going to be able to. It's, it's like Deuteronomy 4 says. In Deuteronomy 4, the Israelites are warned to stay clear, far, steer far clear from idolatry because the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Don't even get close to idolatry because this is who God is. He's not one that you can share, that can, that can share the stage with anyone. Paul says in the book of Acts that in him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being we live and we move in him he says in colossians he tells the people to do everything whether in word or deed in the name of the lord jesus everything see he's not just he's not just a god who you can kind of stick in a compartment stick in a box which is what some people try to do they try to say well god you can have sunday morning or maybe even two sunday mornings a month if you're lucky god 
Or they say to God, okay, you, you have authority over this area of my life. You can tell me what to do here, but I'm going to decide what to do in the money area or in the sexuality area. I'm going to decide that, or I'm going to listen to others. But God, you, you, can, you can tell me what to do here. That doesn't work. Because God is unlike any other. If he is God and you give your life to him, it's, it's, a full, it's a full surrender. He fills every room. He orients every aspect of our lives. That's just consistent with who he is as the God who consumes drenched altars. And the Israelites, to their credit, they understand that. Because verse 39, when the people saw God's power, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And this is an answer to Elijah's prayer that God would show his power and turn their hearts back again. In fact, they are so zealous for the Lord that the people chased down the prophets of Baal and helped kill them. That's verse 40. I didn't have my kids act that one out. And honestly, I kind of thought about not even including it at all and just kind of like ending it at verse 39 and hoping that you didn't read on one verse. Because the idea of being so zealous to the Lord that you kill idolaters, not a family-friendly kind of message, right? And not one, and one that I feel uncomfortable with too. What do we do with this? On the one hand... It is an illustration of what Paul says in Romans about how the wages of sin is death. I've mentioned this before, but from a biblical perspective, sin is cutting yourself off from God, right? It's choosing to live without him, saying, I don't need you, I can do this better on my own. And, and when you do that, you are cutting yourself off from the source of life. Remember, every breath that we have is from God. We live and we move and we have our being in him. So to cut yourself off from God is to embrace death. It's the, it's the, it's the logical outworking of it. And so in one sense, that, that God allows us to live, though we are sinners, is his grace and his mercy. But see, Paul in Romans, he, he had a historical perspective uh, that the author of 1 Kings didn't. Because Paul knew that years after this, another man had been killed on a mount on account of sin and idolatry. A man who actually was not guilty of idolatry, but gave his life in the place of those who were. Jesus, the one truly righteous and holy one, gave his life in the place of idolatrous sinners like you and me so that we could receive the grace of forgiveness and life forever with him. And so in the end, it is not only because of the power of God that we surrender our lives to him, but because of his power and his grace. And so today... Wrapping up here, as, as we enter into this home, as we begin our, our life together here as a church, we know that any good thing that happens here is not because of us. It is because of the power and the grace of God. And so we have a decision to make right here and now, each one of us and as a church. Who will we serve? Will we try to divide our loyalty Will we try to give God just a little bit, or will we surrender to him entirely? 
Will we give him our whole selves? Will we say, God, whatever we do as a church, it's going to be about you. It's going to be because we want to serve you. We want to surrender to you so that you will do all that you want to do in and through us. That's what I want to do. I want to surrender to God. I want to make that choice not to waver between two opinions, but to give myself entirely to him, and I pray that you do too. I know that that's our, that's our leader's mindset as well. Not a divided heart, but wholehearted surrender to him. And, and we have to pray. If we, if we trust that only God can consume the drenched altar that is my life and your life, then we also know that it is only by God's power that this community, this drenched altar, can be consumed by the holy fire of God's presence, his grace, his power. It's, it's, only, it's only by him that that can happen. And so we pray. We seek the Lord in this. Whatever we do in terms of our work, whether it is day camp or alpha programs or marriage courses or, or paddleboarding out on the ocean or youth and young adult ministries, whether it's worshiping and, and, and preaching, in all of it, prayer is the indispensable ingredient. Elijah stepped forward. He prayed this prayer of faith, and heaven, uh, fire fell from heaven. And we are committed to do the same. And if we do, I am convinced that we will see God consume drenched altars. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful again for today. It's just gratitude. And I'm thankful, God, for my brothers and sisters who are here and who are joining us by live stream. And, and, and God, we want to say that we surrender to you. We, we want to make ourselves available to you. We do not want to waver between gods, between idols. We want to give ourselves wholeheartedly to you, Lord, so that your fire would fall so that we would see your power and your grace consume the drenched altars of our lives and those around us. God, we pray, come. We pray as Elijah prayed that you would turn hearts back to yourself. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.